0: We're up to chapter three, Mishnah ten. Rabbi Dustay Bar Rabbi Meir Omer. Rabbi the son of Yanai, said in the name of Rabbi Meir, he attributed this teaching in the name of Rabbi Meir. So of course this gives us a hint as to when he lived, because Rabbi Meir lived in the uh middle to end of the second century of the Common Era. Rabbi Meir is a student of Rabbi Akiva. He's a teacher of Rabbi Judah the Prince. So Rabbi Dustai Baryana is a contemporary of Rabbi Judah the Prince. And he's conveying this teaching in the name of Rabbi Meir. Whoever forgets even one thing of his Torah learning, it is considered for him by scripture as if he bears guilt for his soul. He's liable with his soul. As the verse says, Beware, guard your soul exceedingly, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen. One might think that this is so, even if he, if he forgot his Torah study because it is too difficult for him. Talmud Lomar, this is not so, as Scripture states, unless they be removed from your heart all the days of your life. Thus, one does not bear guilt for a soul unless he sits idly and thereby removes them from his consciousness. So here in this Mishnah, following the many teachings of the importance of Torah study and how special it is and how sanctified it is and how God is participating, so to speak. Now we're told you have to be very careful not only to study, to acquire Torah knowledge, but also to preserve it and to not forget it. And if you forget it, it's really terrible. You're guilty, you're liable with your life. Now, just a, one of the teachings of Rabbi Dostoi Bar-Yanai from the Talmud, I researched the word, there was a, a selection of teachings in his name, is not one of the most uh, commonly mentioned names in the Talmud, but we do know that he was a contemporary of Rabbi Judah the Prince, and there are some interesting stories about him in the Talmud. I want to share one of them from the book of Bava Basra, page 10a, and this is the middle of a, about two-page discussion on the merits of charity, and in those two pages, there is a teaching in the name of Rabbi Dustai Bar And he pointed out something very fabulous. He says, come and see that the way that God behaves is not the way that humans behave. Why? The way humans behave, if someone brings a great gift to a king, he wants to offer a tribute to the king. It's a great, valuable treasure. We don't know, will the king accept or will the king not accept it? And even if the king does accept his tribute, will he have an audience with the king? Will he not have an audience with the king? Again, that's something which is in doubt. We don't know. It could be this, it could be that. There's no certainty. Whereas the Holy One blessed is he is not like that. Why? If someone gives a small gift to God, he's guaranteed to have an audience before the heavenly presence. If someone gives, how do you give a gift to God? If someone gives a pruta, a penny, to a poor person, they're guaranteed to be able to see the face of the Shechina. Quotes a verse in Psalms. As for me, I will behold your face through charity. I will be satisfied when I awake with your likeness. There is a scriptural pledge here that no matter how little someone's contribution of charity may be, it guarantees them an audience before God, and this is an interesting teaching that we have uh, of the same author of our Mishnah. There's another uh, very dramatic story in the Book of Gittin, page 14a and b. I'll give you the the highlights. The highlights is he's tasked with transporting a very valuable item, and it doesn't exactly go as as planned. You could go uh, read it yourself. Uh, there's some other teachings about him in the Talmud, but regardless, he is the one. Uh, Chosen to convey the importance of not only studying Torah, but preserving it, maintaining it. We, Like we said earlier, we had a chapter, the whole chapter, essentially chapter three, is it lauding the importance of Torah study. Now we're going to learn about how it's important to preserve and remember it. And of course, the only way to remember Torah study is via review. There's two skill sets for Torah. We know like it's different to get elected is one thing. But to govern is an entirely different beast. Similarly, to, to acquire a fortune requires one skill set. To maintain it, to preserve it, to perpetuate it requires a different skill set. With Torah, it's the same thing. You have to have both. For someone to be a truly great Torah scholar, they have to A, learn the skills and put in the diligence to acquire Torah knowledge and B, to have the discipline to preserve it via constant review. And if someone doesn't do it, if someone forgets it, we have, again, very harsh punishment, very severe treatment that he's given. He is liable with his life. Why is it so severe if someone forgets a piece of Torah study? So the commentaries offer various interpretations. Rabbani Yonah, amongst others, say that, well, someone's a great Torah scholar, And someone comes with a question. The way a great Torah scholar approaches a halachic dilemma is by assimilating all the knowledge that they have into the given scenario. So they have to know really everything to be able to know everything that does or does not apply to this given situation. So my favorite example of this is a response from the 18th century it's a piece of scholarship that is so incredible that if people were to create it, like normal humans like us, were to create it, it would be considered their life's greatest accomplishment. And it's one of thousands written by the great No No-dubi Behuda, who was one of the greatest rabbis of the 18th century. But basically, he deals with a, a very salacious story. Uh, about a woman who engaged in some sort of extramarital activity. But it's not so clear. There's all kinds of variables to to oversee this particular question. And the actual question was, is this woman allowed to stay with her husband or not? Because uh, a woman who is unfaithful, there has to be a divorce. That's the halacha. But we don't know what's the evidence, are the witnesses, the witnesses do it, all kinds of variables in this particular question. So he starts off his response by saying, this woman must be divorced. She's not allowed to stay with her husband. What's my rationale? I'm going to present you from the entire vast seas of the Talmud, six different reasons why you may think that it's allowed, that she could stay with her husband. And he presents this reason, this reason, this reason, again, based upon incredible, incredible grasp of all kinds of scholarship on the Talmud from the entire Vast expanses of its wisdom and its law and its vast seas, as it's called in Jewish literature. So after he presents the six reasons why she should be allowed to stay married, he's like, okay, now I'm going to disprove all six of them. And he spends, again, this is, this is literally encompassing 50 to 70 pages, depends on the size of the font, tiny font, incredible Genius to be able to look at the entire Talmud and have it totally in your fingertips to be able to present the six potential feasible arguments why it should be one case and then to be able to say, no, 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 why it's really not like that with incredible genius and breadth of knowledge. That's really what's required of, of Torah, Torah giants. Now, again, there's no one today who's like that from a different era, but what were it to be if someone like that would forget Torah? There'd be some part of a given scenario that they probably won't be able to have that same command because they forgot parts of it. And then what's going to be? They're going to give a ruling. And is the ruling complete? No, the ruling is incomplete. And in effect, what's going to happen is a great Torah scholar is going to rule either against Torah law or not fully getting down to all the particular particular variables of that question. And then what's going to be? You have someone walking up and saying, I'm going to give you the... The will of God, so to speak. He comes to the rabbi, say, I want to know what the will of God, I don't want your opinion. I want to know what the, what the Almighty thinks. And then he's going to present something which is incorrect or incomplete. And he say, this is the opinion of the Almighty. Well, how could you do that? You're walking around, you're making up stories, you're fraudulently falsifying the will of God. That's very dangerous. And therefore, if you forget, you're liable with your life because this is very scary because you may... Present to the world something that you purport to be the will of God when really it isn't. An alternative explanation as to why someone who forgets their Torah study is warranted, uh, or it's it's reasonable for them to be given such a severe punishment—they're liable with a life, they're guilty with a life, they're in grave, mortal, existential danger—is that, uh, like we said last week, Torah has within it protective powers, it is able to afford the people who study its Torah some degree of protection. Every single portion of Torah has within it its own portion of protection, its own modicum of protection. And therefore, when someone divests themselves of a degree of Torah, here we're told that they divest themselves as well of a degree of protection, and therefore, they are more vulnerable today. Now, it's interesting, if you look at the structure of the Mishnah, it seems to kind of only talk about two extremes. It says, well, first of all, if someone forgets the Torah, they'll lie both life. Well, what if it was too difficult for them? So the commentaries explain it was too difficult either because of illness or because of advanced age or dementia or Alzheimer's or something like that. Then, of course, they can't be blamed. But if they sit down, and they deliberately and willfully and wantonly remove the Torah, well, then they are guilty. Isn't there something in between that? Isn't there something between extreme negligence, extreme situation where you had no say in the matter? Isn't there something in between where you just forgot you were involved with other things, but you didn't sit and forcefully remove the Torah from yourself? It seems like for the mission, there's really only two extremes. If you forget Torah, it's for one of two reasons. Either because you're totally innocent, it was forced out of you, either because of old age. You're totally not to be blamed at all. the the, the diff, It was too difficult for you, so to speak. It uh, factors beyond your control cause the Torah to be forgotten. That's one side. And the only other possibility is, as in the words of the Mishnah, you sit down and you remove them from your consciousness, as if you do something actively. Isn't there a way to passively just forget it? What's going on? So, so the commentaries tell us something very troubling, uh, and sad and that is that we default to forgetting the default is if someone does not review their Torah study they will forget it and therefore unless they actively counteract that default setting they will forget it and that is considered as if they sat down and they actively removed it from their heart and I think there's another point here and that is that when people study and they don't review it, it shows that their attitude towards towards studies, that it's kind of nice to study but it's not really that important or not important enough to ensure that you don't forget it and you don't review it. If it's really important, it's something that you'll make sure that you maintain it by constant review. Now The problem is, is that it's very difficult to review because it's not novel – and also, when you review something that you studied, it's kind of depressing to realize that how little you retain. And therefore, as a way to avoid the pain of confronting how little you retain, we avoid the problem entirely by never even reviewing. There's a great story about a rabbi who used to give a daily lecture in the Talmud. Uh, it's called the Daf Yomi. There's a, a worldwide um, – I guess it's called a program – where people study a page of Talmud every day, and then every seven and a half years they finish the entire Talmud. All twenty seven hundred and eleven pages. So there's this rabbi who would give the Dafyomi lecture every morning, and he wasn't sure the people were kinda of half sleeping. He wasn't sure how much they were retaining. So one day he did an experiment. He said, I'm going to uh I'm gonna to start today's page. Instead of starting today's page, I'm gonna do yesterday's page again. And we'll see if people recognize it. It's early in the morning. They're half sleeping. We'll see what happens. So he starts, uh, today was let's say page 50. He starts page 49 and he starts reading. And halfway through, one of the people stops and says, Rabbi, you won't believe what I'm about to tell you. You won't believe it. I'm pretty sure that I remember this page of Talmud from, from when we studied it seven and a half years ago. I, I can't believe it. I remember it from last cycle. Let's see, it's, we don't know if the story is apocryphal or not, <laughs> but it may be apocryphal, but uh, I think that the lesson is true. You can study something and literally the very next day not remember it because that's just the human design. And by doing that, we're actively removing it from our head. Uh, I had a teacher once who told me that if you look on any page of Talmud, you'll see that on the, the way it's laid out, there's always four lines of Rashi on the margins above the text of the Talmud. And he said, what that's telling you is that to study properly, you have to study, review it at least four times. That's considered just to study it. Uh, that's the minimum. Uh, my personal policy that I had when I was in yeshiva, at least during certain time periods, is I would study a either a page of Talmud or a half a page of Talmud every day in the afternoon session. But I would begin every session by studying yesterday's portion and then study a new page and then review today's page again. So at a minimum, you're doing it three times and then on Shabbos the weekend, you would do all seven pages or all six pages, depending on what you did, review it again. And that way you gain a more comprehensive grasp on the material. There are all kinds of tactics that people use. There's this one guy, he knows all of Talmud, both the Jerusalem and the Babylonian Talmud verbatim, and he wrote a book of the proper ways to, or the system, a systematizing way of how to do it. There's the a program of learning seven pages of Talmud a day, a new page of Talmud, yesterday's page, three days ago's page, a week ago's page, a month ago's page, three months ago's page, and a year ago's page, something like that. And that way you're constantly reviewing it on an ongoing basis. Uh, the Talmud does warn us uh, that we cannot forget any bit of Torah. We have to study Torah to a degree that if someone asks us a question – Without any hesitation, without any confusion, without any fumbling for words, we know the answer right away. The Talmud also tells us, this is again a striking line, it sounds hyperbolic, it's incomparable someone who studies a page of Talmud or a portion or a chapter 100 times versus someone who studies it 101 times. Even though you've done it 100 times, there's still more to gain by reviewing it. And uh, just another story. Every year in the yeshiva, the mir yeshiva that I went to, the largest yeshiva in the world, they would have a test on – every every year they would go through two two books of Talmud every year. And at the conclusion of every book of Talmud, they would have a test on the entire book, not just the text of the Talmud but also the Rashi commentary, the Tosos commentary, an amazing test. And they would have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people take the entire test and the entire, entire volume of Talmud. But then one year, they made a special program. There's a special offer. And you know, when people pass the test, they would get a little stipend, some little money stipend for passing the test. They made one year, they were learning Masechus Chesubas, which is one of the books of the Talmud. And they said, I made, made an offer, whoever takes a brand new test, a totally comprehensive test on this book, when we're done, is going to get $5,000 which is a lot of money, especially for someone in yeshiva. But we're not going to tell you what the nature of the test is. You have to know the, the, the material so well that you can take any test. By heart, no, no problems, everything. So there were only two people who were brave enough to face the, face the fire. And they get in the room, and the rabbi tells them, okay, we're going to test you on the whole book of Tsubos. Of and the test is as follows. Start listing for me. Every single time, on every single page of the Talmud, that there is a dispute between the commentary of Rashi and the commentary of Tosfos. So if you look at any Talmud, the inner margin is Rashi and the outer margin is the Tosfos. Very complicated stuff. And very often, the Tosfos begins, Pirosh Rashi explained, and I'll tell you why I disagree with him. There's about four or five of them in every page. So now you have to know the content of the subject matter. You have to understand the intricacies of the disputes between Rashi and Tostos. Start go, go. There's hundred whatever, 20 pages in the, the book. Let's hear the 500 disagreements between Rashi and Tostos in this book. So apparently this is a legend. I know actually, this is the legend that I've heard. Apparently the two guys did it. And about hundred pages in, the test said, okay, I feel like you know it well enough. You've passed. And those guys are uh, – uh, they obviously know that uh, book of Talmud very, very well. When I was in Torah, it's a yeshiva oriented on people who are newcomers to Judaism. There were two guys who studied the book of Sukkah, the Talmud of Sukkah, 50 times. And they knew it backwards and forwards, upside down, every which way. They knew it. And then you have the legends of like Rabbi Kiv Eger who was one of the giants of the end of the 18th and early 19th century, he studied Talmud like thousands of times. He studied the entire Talmud. And he had such a complete comprehensive grasp of the Talmud. And then you have uh, giants uh, in modern times, like Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, for example, passed away in 1985. He studied, first of all, all of Talmud hundreds of times but also all of Shulchan Aruch and all its commentaries hundreds of times. And in fact, there was one person who said, Rabbi Feinstein, how do you make render such a ruling? It seems to conflict with the actual text of the Shulchan Aruch, of the Code of Jewish Law. So he responded, it's not possible. I've in fact studied this Code of Jewish Law 400 times. And you wonder, if he how do you know so much? Well, if you studied the Code of Jewish Law 400 times, you too will know so much. And then there's another story about him that his... Grandson he told his grandson, Oh, I want to make a uh, a seum, a celebration. I finished the Talmud. He says, I don't get it. You finished Talmud all the time. What's the big deal? Of course he finished the Talmud. Why are you making this big celebration out of it? He says, Well, because I finished it for the hundred and first time. And the Talmud says that there's no difference, there's a major difference. If someone who finishes a hundred times, and someone who does a hundred and one times. And now it's a hundred and one times I want to celebrate this this completion. And then there was another story about him that they said to him, he said he wants to make a seum. What's the see He wants to finish he finished the Talmud. He finished the whole Talmud. Amazing. But they said, I understand, you, made it, you finished the Talmud like two or three weeks ago. If you finished Talmud two or three weeks, you can't finish the whole Talmud in two or three weeks. No, you, even someone like you can't do that. He says to them, yes. But I get invited to officiate at weddings and weddings and all kinds of uh, life uh, markers. And every time there's a wedding, there's all kinds of empty white space of time. Yeah, you know, they get arranging the thing and arranging this and they're arranging that. There's always like a half hour for time downtime. So what I decided is that I started with the book of Brachos, the first book of the Talmud. And every time I go to a wedding, I take that with me. And I studied for during that during those few minutes of downtime. And then eventually I moved on to the next book. And to the next book, into the next book, and, the next book, and the next book. Now I'm finishing the Talmud of all that little white space. White space here, white space there. I've amassed enough time to finally finish the whole Talmud, and therefore. That was kind of on its own cycle and now I've concluded that. And again, of course, that shows us a degree of diligence that is the theme of this Mishnah. I want to end with uh, an interesting statement that's been said. Uh, Again, I don't know it's origin, but I've heard it in various different iterations that when someone gets to heaven, everyone goes to the same place. They go to the study hall. Okay, there's one version of the story is that they go to the study hall, it's 9 o'clock, and the study goes to 9 to 1, which is what it's like in every yeshiva. But what they do is the clock gets broken at 9.15. So then you're there for infinite time. So if you're someone who's who's learned to love Torah study, it's heaven. You get study all, all time. If you're like the guy who's like, I can't wait to get out of here, this is miserable, then it's absolute torture. Everyone gets punished and rewarded the same way. It's the same exact thing. They get rewarded and punished in the same same exact location, same exact venue. For one person, it's heaven. The other person, it's absolute, grueling, grinding hell. That's one version of the story. The second version of the story is in heaven, you get to the room and it's time to study Torah, study Talmud. But you go to the bookshelves and the bookshelves are empty. And the only Amount of Torah that you could delve into is what you know. What you know, what's in your hand. And this idea relies on the statement in the Talmud in the book of Basra, page 10b, a famous story about one of the rabbis who had a near-death experience. And after he came back to the land of the living, they asked him, well, what do you see in heaven? So he gives a whole story of what he saw. So the lofty ones were lowly and the lowly ones were lofty and the Torah scholars were the same and a whole story. And then he adds, and I heard that they were announcing, Ashrei Misha praiseworthy is he who comes here, Vitalmudo Biado, and his scholarship, his Talmud is in his hand. He has a firm grasp on it. And that's the idea. You gotta come to heaven. You gotta have the book in your hand. Cause you know what? You're not gonna get a copy of it over there. And whatever you know, that's what you get to partake in. But again, these are all ideas oriented around this central premise of this Mishnah, and that is it's not only about how much you study, it's about how much you retain. And if someone forgets it, it's really bad. And you are going to default to forget it. That's the human design we're going to forget unless we review. And therefore, there's a tremendous imperative for us not only study new things, but to also go back on the things we've studied in the past, and to review them as much as needed so that we actually remember them, and then when we two arrive to heaven, we have something to hold in our hands that we t- have taken with us, we've acquired, so to speak, we've earned it with our study and with our review.